are listening to the MythMaker Podcast Network. Welcome to the podcast with a thousand faces. I'm John Booker, creative director of the Joseph Campbell Foundation. People come to the work of Joseph Campbell in lots of different ways. Some discover his work in a classroom, others in a bookstore. Still others encounter Campbell through a television series called The Power of Myth that he created with Bill Moyers in the season just before his death. For many around my age, Campbell entered our lives through the work of a young man from Modesto, California named George Lucas. Lucas credited Campbell's work for the very existence of Star Wars, and the two men developed a meaningful friendship later in Campbell's life. Those that have continued to carry the torch of telling stories in that galaxy far, far away have also been quick to credit Joseph Campbell and his ideas as being crucial to the framework that they are building on. Last year at Star Wars Celebration, leaders from the Joseph Campbell Foundation sat down with thinkers and scholars in the Star Wars community to talk about how Campbell's ideas could be seen in one of the latest stories from the Star Wars universe, the Disney streaming series, The Mandalorian. Today on the podcast, we bring you that conversation in its entirety. On the panel, aside from me, you'll hear Tori Yates Orr, an Emmy-nominated host and podcaster that works with the Joseph Campbell Foundation. You'll hear Barbara Dillon, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Fanbase Press, an Eisner Award-nominated publishing company and media outlet. And you'll hear Dr. Thomas Parham, an author and professor of communications and media. A word of warning, spoilers for both seasons one and two of The Mandalorian abound in this discussion. But now, set back, relax, and enjoy this conversation on Joseph Campbell in Star Wars, The Mandalorian. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Star Wars Celebration Fan Stage. I am the host of the Fan Stage, Dan Zare, and I'm excited to be here because this is about education and Star Wars, and there's no one better to present for you today. This is the way, The Mandalorian and Joseph Campbell. The new myths call up new art forms. Star Wars producer-director, George Lucas. About 10 years ago, I set out to write a children's film. I had an idea of doing a modern fairy tale, stumbled across a hero with a thousand faces. After reading uh, more of Joe's books, I began to understand how I could do this. It was a great gift uh, and, uh, and a very important moment. If I don't, you know, it's possible that if I hadn't run across that, I would still be writing Star Wars today. There's a wonderful life force that comes through, a wit and charm when Joe speaks that, as wonderful as the books are, don't capture the man. I knew I'd found something when I started writing The Hero. <laughs> it's been a, a large 
large experience because that's what I was hoping for when I was writing, mm -hmm. namely that I was giving people um, the key to the realm of the muses, which is where myth is. The seat of the soul is there where the inner and the outer worlds meet. The outer world is what you get in scholarship. The inner world is your response to it. And it's where these come together that we have the mythos. The outer world changes with historical time. The inner world is the world of anthropos. It is the world constant to the human race. And so you have throughout the mythological systems a constant. You always have the sense of recognizing something. And what you're recognizing is your own inward life. And at the same time, the inflection through history. And the problem of making the inner meet the outer of today is, of course, the function of the artist. And it's because my work has had some influence on people who are doing this uh, that I feel so, so proud, so proud of this moment. Welcome to our panel today. I am so excited that you came. My name is John Booker. I am the creative director for the Joseph Campbell Foundation. And we, we have been talking about this moment for some time to be with our people that love mythology and Star Wars and have everybody in one space together. And here we finally are. I have asked some dear friends who are some of the most interesting people in the galaxy to join me uh, in, in talking about mythology, the work of Joseph Campbell and Star Wars, but specifically about our new passion on this panel, the Mandalorian. Love it. I, I want to begin our time together just by telling you just a little bit about how this will go. Uh, we have some things we want to talk about, but I have chosen three different clips from The Mandalorian, which I have not shown to the panel <laughs> at all. So my plan is to show a clip and then put them on the spot and have them respond to it. Because let's be honest, it's a lot of fun to watch people squirm on a panel. And that's kind of, you know, I, this, is a, this is for you. This is a, your entertainment today. So I, I want to make sure you, you get to see some squirming. So they have not seen these clips that I've chosen before. But we are going to have a great time today. I will just say in this panel, if you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong. So. Please just join in with us. We're going to take a look at those three clips. We're going to talk about some things. Then at the end, we'll save a little bit of time to, uh, to, to hear from you and uh, see if there's any questions that you have for us. The last thing that I'll say before we take a look at our first clip is this. We live in a very different world than Joseph Campbell lived in when he wrote The Hero with a Thousand Faces in 1949. Joseph Campbell's work changed my life. It has impacted me so deeply. But like any good theory or any good idea, if it doesn't expand and grow and change and evolve with culture, it's not worth that much. 
And we are so excited at the Joseph Campbell Foundation about taking these ideas of this singular hero that went on a journey and bringing these into our modern culture and looking at the collective journey that we're going on as a culture. We're excited about the ensemble hero that so many of the great Star Wars shows have shown us. It's not about one person going on this journey and doing all this for their personal ego, but it's about this team, this collective of people that every person plays a part and there's a piece and it's inclusive of such a wider group. Anybody else down with that? Are you guys in for the ensemble journey? All right. Well, my friend Tom in the back has been so good to us to help us with these video clips. Tom, let's go with that first clip and uh, we'll have the panel um, respond to it afterwards. So the, the panel's super nervous right now. You guys just be there for them. But Tom, let's take a look at that first clip. Or perhaps the decommissioned Mandalorian hunter, Din Djarin, has heard the songs of the siege of Mandalore when gunships outfitted with similar ordnance laid waste to fields of Mandalorian recruits in the night of a thousand tears. I advise disgraced magistrate Grief Karga to search the wisdom of his years and urge you to lay down your arms and come outside. The structure you are trapped in will be raised in short order and your storied lives will come to an unceremonious end. What do you propose? Reasonable negotiation. What assurance do you offer? If you're asking if you can trust me, you cannot. <laughs> Just as you betrayed our business arrangement, I would gladly break any promise and watch you die in my hand. The assurance I give is this. I will act in my own self-interest, which at this time involves your cooperation and benefit. Okay, so in this first clip here, we see Moff Gideon saying, I will act in my own self-interest. We see this put up on one side as the individual, right, who's all about their own self-interest, but then we see Mando and this team on the inside who are this team and this collective. I now pose to the panel, what do you think we gain by moving from like an individual journey to a more inclusive journey that's about everybody playing a part, anybody that wants to start? I can start. Okay. I think what is so, and I think going back to what John was saying, uh, the idea of story in and of itself, stories matter so profoundly to us because they are universal. No matter what your lived experiences may be, there are ways that we are going to connect with one another, just as Din Djarin, just as Karth Race, just as all of these characters are finding ways that they connect, whether it's through the Night of a Thousand Tears on Mandalore, whether it was the rebellion and, um, oh no, I'm forgetting. 
the name of the planets, oh, Alderaan, sorry. Um, whether it's the destruction of Alderaan and all of Karathrace's people, whether it's whatever, and we haven't entirely seen it, but whatever Grogu went through uh, on the night of uh, Order 66, these individuals all have their own lived experiences that have brought them to this place that we're seeing and that bring them together to want to fight against Moff Gideon, to fight against this oppressive authoritarian nature uh, that is threatening their existence. So uh, just to start That's us off. Amazing. <laughs> and what I'm doing, by the way, because I know some of you are like, who is that brilliant woman that just spoke? No, no. I'm going to introduce each panelist after they have spoken. <laughs> this is Barbara Dillon. Huh. She originated Fanbase Press, uh, which, which they do comics and, and podcasts and all sorts of amazing things, and also give it up because Barbara and Fanbase were just nominated for an Eisner Award. Woo! Thank you. <laughs> Someone else, what, what, what do we gain through this? I think for me, what I noticed is Moff Gideon is almost a representation of the ego versus the higher self, which is represented by the group. And I'm looking out for my own self-interest. All of us have an ego that looks out for their own self-interest. But I think all of us aspire to be a part of something, and I think that's probably why we're all fans of this franchise, of something greater than us, of something greater than our most base level interest. And so when I see that, as much as I love Moff Gideon, the character, <laughs> um, I recognize like, yeah, that's my ego coming up and telling me, but this is what I really want. <laughs> but is it for the best for me, for the people around me, for my community? And I think that's kind of what that whole clip is about, just what it resonated in terms for me personally. The brilliant Tori Yates, or history communicator, uh, co-host of Skeleton Keys podcast, and one of the most amazing, intelligent women you will ever meet in your life, Tori Yates, or everybody. <laughs> Tom, I think it's on you. <laughs> no pressure. Um, does anybody play a bad guy as good as Giancarlo Esposito? I mean, the dude is awesome. <laughs> I read an interview where his kids are like, Daddy, don't hurt baby Yoda. And he just says, I will squash that big-eared baby like a bug. <laughs> uh, the fascinating thing is, like Tori and Barbara have said, that Gideon represents the individual, the selfishness, the ego, whereas Mando has thought he was a free agent and then discovers his highest, higher calling. And one of the fascinating aspects is when, when Mandalorian was announced, we're not, we, weren't, we thought, oh, Boba Fett's gonna be the, no, he's gonna be a guest star and get his own spinoff. But we get an entirely new character who seems to be just a hired gun. And one of the fascinating things of this series is that Favreau and Filoni have touched base with two of George Lucas's original inspirations, the Samurai movie and also the American Western, and fused them to be, create something new. So he's a ronin, he is a samurai without a master, and yet he finds a higher calling in protecting this innocent. And it's kind of an interesting reversal of what we saw in the classic trilogy, where we have Yoda, who's 900 years old, training Luke, or trying to train Luke if the boy would listen, and then you have Grogu, who's adorable and merchandising money for uh, Lucasfilm slash Disney. <laughs> but also Mando becomes surrogate father to this creature he knows nothing about the race. And they form this bond that's stronger than blood, 
that's stronger than culture, and all of us are like, sign me up. Well said, Tom. Well said. This is Dr. Tom Parham, film professor, author. He wrote a new book on Star Trek. We're going to forgive that, though. That's okay. We're going to. I love gonna them all. Not hold that to him. <laughs> But, but also cosplayer extraordinaire and just one of the coolest guys I've ever known. So give it up, Dr. Tom Parra. So we, we've seen over the course of The Mandalorian in, in the different uh, uh, seasons. Now, anybody catch the new trailer, by the way? Anybody see the new trailer? How excited are you for the next season? We, we've seen, though, over the course of The Mandalorian, this team that, that Mando is working with, we see different people come in and out of the, the, the picture in the setting. Joseph Campbell talked a lot about different uh, characters that we would, uh, in, in, I guess that we would encounter on our journey, whether that be uh, a, a, a wise old sage like a, a Yoda or uh, an Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, but also there are these, um, the, these wonderful feminine characters that come into play. And Joseph Campbell talked about the meeting with the goddess. And I think as a collective, we as a culture have been having these meetings with the goddess, this feminine energy in the world. But also um, th this team that Mando is working with, we see um, uh, women coming in and out of these circles. Um, let's talk about that for a moment. A anybody have, have, have thoughts? What does that bring up for anybody? I'm going to be honest, I just really want to talk about the armorer right now. <laughs> yeah. Because, wow, Emily Swallow. Listen, all of the feminine characters all bring something different. And I think that's what I think Campbell was talking about. As the goddess presents themselves with different um, motivations, different attributes. I love the armorer because obviously she is this extremely fierce warrior. But she reminds me so much of so many different cultures of the matriarch or the woman who holds the information of the past, who holds the stories. I know this is gonna sound weird, the armor kind of reminds me of like my grandmother <laughs> <laughs> in the best way, in terms of you came to them for guidance, they would put you back on the path, they would put you back on the way because they had to hold that. Mm. Um, and I think that's why that part of the feminine with Mando is so important because she's kind of a touchstone for him. Um, even we see, you know, in the Boba Fett series when he has to come back to her, yeah. um, is that that aspect of the feminine is steady, it holds. Um, it's not something that is necessarily in flow. And I think a lot of times we think of the feminine as, as very flowy, very, you know, um, moving around. She's strong, she's stable. And it's that aspect of the feminine that we get to experience and why I think she's personally my favorite. Have you noticed there's like a lot of badass women at Star Wars Celebration? <laughs> I love I, it I'm so like much. loving seeing that. It's amazing. Um, I, I love the, the armorer too. And actually we're gonna watch a clip here in just a moment about uh, the, the armorer, but um, Barbara, Tom, any, any other 
ideas that come up for you. Absolutely. And first and foremost, I want to start by apologizing because we were talking about BSG before we started. So if I said Cara Thrace and not Cara Dune, I apologize profusely. Um, <laughs> um, for me, first, I co-sign everything regarding the armor. And I think what's fascinating about the the archetype of, or the, the concept of the goddess is that it, it was created or per, perhaps we wrap our minds around it to mean everything that is the female form, everything that is feminine. So that is, that is the matriarch, that is the mother, that is the wife, everything that, that encompasses beauty, the daughter. So any concept of what female or feminine means. But I think what's amazing is that as we are moving to a time in our society, just as myth evolves and story evolves, so too do our societies involve with, which, you know, is a cyclical thing. It then changes story, it changes our myth. It's amazing that we are moving away from the binary or, or uh, uh, concept of more of a heteronormative uh, spectrum of sexuality, of gender. And so there are so many different female representations or female identifying representations in The Mandalorian, and I think that's so important because as incredible as the armor is, she is not the end-all be-all representation of what a, a female identifying individual is. I even think of, I mean, uh, uh, Ahsoka. Oh, love Ahsoka. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I even think about the female character, the mother that is in the second episode, Sanctuary, and what a, a strong, and I don't say, you know, because I know that there is a trope of strong female character and, and what that has come to mean, but she is a strong three-dimensional character who has many different attributes uh, that are relayed throughout the course of that episode, and what a wonderful representation that is for everyone to have as well. You set me up perfectly, Barbara. Uh, one of the things I really find fascinating is when they brought Bo-Katan in, in live action, also played by, I was gonna say Kara Thrace, by, <laughs> by Katie Sackhoff, who did the voice for the animated series. But what's fascinating is when, when she encounter, encounters Mando, she's like, what do you mean you never take your helmet off? <laughs> and Mando starts to realize maybe there's more than one kind of way to be a Mandalorian, and maybe I'm in the kind of version that's kind of a cult. <laughs> so I'll be interested to see how, as, as the universe continues to expand, to see the relationship between these different sects of Mandalore, and obviously the Darksaber is the MacGuffin, <laughs> which is very cool to see in live action. I still don't know what all the rules are for it, but um, no, it's, it's fascinating. I love Ahsoka. We were talking a little bit before the panel. I'm looking forward to seeing where her series goes because for me, I came to Clone Wars late in the game because I was not, you know, confessions. I was not a fan of the, the prequel trilogy and I've had many a discussion argument with uh, friends and colleagues and students about that. But as the final season was approaching, one of my students at Azusa Pacific gave me a list of episodes. Dr. P, watch these episodes to prepare for the final season. So I did. And the thing that struck me is that finale, which is basically a two-hour movie, I get the emotional resonance I was missing from the prequel trilogy in that movie because it's told through Ahsoka's eyes. And she's amazing, and I've loved Rosario Dawson before she got cast, so you take an amazing character and an amazing actor, I wanna see where she's gonna go, where they're gonna go with her. And I think we're gonna have some new twists on Hero's journey with a strong female hero who's not just a sidekick anymore, or a Padawan, she is her own 
Jedi. And this is something actually that, that Joseph Campbell spoke a lot about were these feminine underworld journeys where these strong women go on this underworld journey. This, of course, is all throughout mythology. Um, you know, my favorite uh, story along these lines is the story of Persephone that, mm. uh, you know, goes on an underworld journey. But even further back than Persephone from Greek mythology, we also have uh, from Akkadian, Babylonian, and Assyrian mythology, we also have Inanna that goes on a uh, underworld journey long before the, the the Greeks, you know, pick up that story. And when I I specifically am looking forward to seeing this feminine journey that I think is going to be very different than the the masculine uh, journey and the collective centered around. The, these female characters, I think, is going to be different also. So, super excited to see that. Tom, I think we would like to uh, go ahead and move to our second clip. So, let's take a look at the second clip uh, that we have for today. Panel, pay attention. Watch closely. <laughs> Here we go. Show me the one whose safety deemed such destruction. This is the one. This is the one that you hunted, then saved? Yes. The one that saved me as well. From the mud horn? Yes. It looks helpless. It's injured, but it is not helpless. Its species can move objects with its mind. I know of such things. The songs of eons past tell of battles between Mandalore the Great and an order of sorcerers called Jedi that fought with such powers. It is an enemy? No. It's kind we're enemies, but this individual is not. What is it? It is a foundling. By Creed. It is in your care. You wish me to train this thing? It is too weak. It would die. You have no choice. You must reunite it with its own kind. Where? This you must determine. You expect me to search the galaxy for the home of this creature and deliver it to a race of enemy sorcerers? This is the way. I love it! In this clip, we, we have Mando being told, you know, that he is to take the child, he's to take Grogu and, and deliver it, uh, the child to um, th this tribe of enemy sorcerers. Campbell had this idea of taking the boon back to the community, which is, is something that's very big in the monomyth and the hero's journey. Um, I think, you know, that the idea of bringing a boon back to the community, we could talk about that in terms of uh, the different things people bring to the community within, you know, the Mandalorian. Also, within Star Wars fandom as a whole, what is the Mandalorian, or maybe even Star Wars on a larger level, bringing back to the community that we desperately need right now? You could answer it a million different ways, either specifically within the terms of the characters of the Mandalorian or within what is Star Wars bringing to the larger uh, culture that, that we need right now. Any thoughts? 
Yeah, okay. please. <laughs> um, uh, John and I were talking about this in Tori as well, uh, offline. Um, but I think for me, and this may differ with every single person because everyone here has a different connection with the Star Wars franchise. For me, uh, mainly with the, the Skywalker saga, as it were, and, and everything that is extended outside of that, for me, the key component is the concept of compassion. What is existence when compassion is applied and what is the existence when it is taken away? Um, and so for me, I think that what I see in this, and I, I think that Mando's entire uh, arc, as we've seen it over the past two seasons, is he is someone that uh, compassion was taken away from him. He, he was, his parents, his, uh, his guardians were taken away from him at a very young age. He became, he found a, a new family, a non-biological family in the Children of the Watch. And he is now passing on that same level of compassion to another orphaned being who is Grogu. Um, and as difficult, I mean, we've seen throughout the two seasons instances where he has had to, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, leave Grogu behind with other individuals, whether in his mind permanently or temporarily, and what a struggle that is for him. So for him to be, and again, tasked with a, another call to action, because I think that, and Thomas will probably talk more about this, that the hero's journey is not a definitive, it has to be applied in this one way, uh, especially in, in serialized storytelling over multiple episodes. But this is another call to action for the character and another internal call to action and struggle that he must deal with in, I have to, at some point at the end of this journey, leave Grogu again, perhaps permanently. And I think that that's the, the biggest, you know, he is compassionate for Grogu, he wants the best for him, but I think he struggles with, I, but I would love to be the caretaker of this individual. What, what's kind of, what struck me when the first time this scene, she uses the word foundling, and we're gonna find out that Mando was also a foundling. So that's a connection that the two of them share. And then also, because monomyth, the concept of a changeling, of, a, I first learned that term from a classic Star Trek episode, sorry, gotta bring in Star Trek. But the notion that a child would be replaced by a fairy and be raised among humans, and that recurs throughout different world mythologies, but here we have Grogu, who's a race of powerful beings associated with sorcerers. I love that they use the term sorcerer for right. Jedi because we're not used to hearing that. And it's like, oh, but that's what they are. I mean, he's Merlin and Gandalf and Obi-Wan. Um, but yeah, that just uh, struck me. I'm sorry, you know, having read and seen a lot, if you didn't think that Mando was gonna get Grogu back after <laughs> dropping him off, come on, really? Really, really, dude? Um, <laughs> but and we've established the strong bond. Again, going back to the samurai, it's lone wolf and cub. I mean, it's so fascinating that uh, Favre and Filoni are taking all these different mythologies and narratives and tropes and putting them in a Cuisinart, for lack of a better term, and creating something um, familiar yet new and different. And, you know, by the baby, by the Groku merchandise that they've sold, people went nuts for it. I thought I wouldn't buy any, and then a student gave me some. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, we're looking for connection. For me, as yesterday was the 45th anniversary of episode four, I saw it before it had the episode four label on it. <laughs> but for me, it just gave me 
It fulfilled this longing which C.S. Lewis called Zenzuk, this intense longing for the other. And Star Wars, it, it captured my fantasy, especially as a Navy brat who had to move a lot. And when I was in high school, I was a blurred before that was a thing. Although I was able to convert many of my friends to blurreds, and some of them aren't, 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 aren't black, but still nerds, because nerds of a feather flock together. Look at all the crowd. <laughs> but that's what Star Wars is a community. That's the whole saga is, for me, a metaphor about community and the collective versus rebelling against this imposed order, whether it's the empire or the, or the first order. We don't like to be told what to do, and we like to be free, and seeing this played out through generations of Star Wars stories, we want to belong, but not by force. We want to choose to belong. I think what you were saying in terms of the structure is what I've noticed in that clip is that she's telling him these are the stories, but he's like, but she also puts it in the point blank of like, yes, he's a Jedi, but he's also a foundling. And to me, it's that aspect of, I think Mayfield said that something to this effect of when things get messy, sometimes you just gotta change it up. And I think we've all kind of hit that in our lives where the stories we've been told and the stories we've adhered to are not working. You just gotta change it up. You gotta switch, you gotta pivot. And so to, to me, that's what that clip was saying. And I think that's a universal aspect of the myth. We see that through the initiation of trials that we think the story's gonna go one way and then it goes a completely different direction. Um, like you said, I, there was no doubt he was coming back to get Grogu. I mean, I would jump in front of a blaster for Grogu. <laughs> um, I will and I'll tell him that if I ever meet him. Um, but I just think it's the inherent fluidity of story and myth that the keeper of the myth, my girl, the armorer, is saying this is the story. They were our, our enemies, but he's also a foundling mm. and it's now your duty to take care of him. Mm. Mm. I love that. You know, this, this idea of the, the foundlings, um, it, it came up briefly here just a, a moment ago, but we have this idea that comes up a lot, actually, in The Mandalorian of, of orphanhood. And this is a really, really key issue in mythology. Something Joseph Campbell talked a lot about was orphans. And we see this in everything, you know, from uh, uh, the, the ancient stories about Moses. Uh, we, we see this all the way up through modern mythologies. It's not just Ray who's been orphaned or Luke Skywalker who's been orphaned. It's also Harry Potter. Are we even allowed to say his <laughs> name here? I don't know. Um, but, but we see, you know, so many... Um, so many characters in speculative fiction uh, that even relate to the fairy tales, you know, the, the, the Cinderella's, uh, all these different characters, male, female, non-binary. We, we have orphanhood being this current theme that runs through. What is it about the magical orphaned child that gets people's attention and that is so magic uh, when it comes to the, the way culture is drawn to a character. Why these magical orphan children? And a silence falls <laughs> over the panel. I mean, I think personally, I think we all feel a little bit, especially, I, I'm going to speak for myself, but in the nerd community, we kind of always feel a little bit of an outsider, hmm. a little bit of, I haven't had that structure to support me. 
And so I think for me, that's why I always kind of love that. I am going to say I do like Harry Potter. <laughs> um, but I do kind of love that sense of sometimes you do feel alone. You do feel like you don't have that support. And I think no matter if it's the typical, you know, the stereotypical orphan, everyone feels at some point in their life that alone. I don't care if you have all the friends in the world, you're gonna feel alone at some time. And so I think that's why that connection is so strong for all of us, because no matter how it comes up, we all have that same feeling. That is a, that is a feeling all of us share. I will expand upon what Tori was saying, because I agree wholeheartedly, and I, I think what's incredible as this evolves is that we are now getting to see, because I agree, I, I think that we all, you know, we are of course all the heroes in our own journeys, mm -hmm. um, but now I think what's wonderful, and I'm gonna bring up another fandom that is one of my favorites, which is the <laughs> Hunger Games. We're now getting to see characters that don't have magical abilities, but they are still the hero, and perhaps the, the difference is that they are placed, uh, they have no special abilities, but they are placed in extraordinary situations, which we can all relate to again. You know, we may not have magical powers, we may not have wands that do special things, but we are special in and of ourselves because no one else can be like us, no one else has had our lived experiences, so we each have something that we can bring to a new adventure, a new call to action. And I think that that's what you're getting yeah. with, with that character, character archetype. What's fascinating is we all have to figure out our own path in life. But if you look at the great uh, mythic heroes from King Arthur to Frodo of the Shire to Luke to Katniss, they're all strong solo characters. They all have a team, but in the end, they have to face the ultimate test by themselves. And I just uh, showed a clip from Harry Potter 7.1 in the tent. It's not from the book. It was Steve Close invented it, created it for the movie. But it's a great scene, wordless, because they put the music on. And for one moment, they get to forget that they have the weight of the world on their shoulders and have some levity and Ron's off sulking because Horcrux has been driving them cray cray. But for one moment, but it's so not fair because these three children have to bear the weight of the world on their shoulders. It's, but that's the stuff of story, that's the stuff of myth. Whether Again, Frodo or Harry or Luke or Arthur. Mm. Well said. Well said. I think also, just to, to build on that for a second, Tom, um, there's this psychological piece about orphanhood that sort of represents um, the individual growth of the human being. There's this time that all of us face in life where we have to, to leave behind our parents and we have to, to go ahead and decide, you know what? This is my life. I'm going to live out my life. I'm not going to uh, stay connected to uh, home. I, I, I have to leave home. The idea, the, the idea that Campbell talked about, about leaving home, really represents uh, this, this psychological condition all of us face when it's time to leave all that's safe and comfortable and go after uh, you know, what, what we think the universe is pulling us to do. And this has been a constant theme ever since, you know, Luke Skywalker went back home and, and, and it's burned to the ground, you know, there's, there's nothing left. So I think all of us relate to that orphanhood on a certain level because we all have had to face those same psychological challenges of moving on 
to something that is unknown in life. Tom, I think we're going to go ahead and take a look at that last uh, clip here. We'll talk about that last clip, and then we're going to invite you into the conversation with us. We'd love to talk to you about your ideas about myth or Joseph Campbell or the Mandalorian, whatever you, uh, you, you uh, have to say. So be thinking of any questions you might have for the panel. Tom, whenever you're ready. This amount can be shaped many ways. My armor has lost its integrity. I may need to begin again. Indeed. I can form a full cuirass. This would be in order for your station. That would be a great honor. I must warn you, it will draw many eyes. <laughs> These were cast in an imperial smelter. These are the spoils of the Great Purge. The reason that we live hidden like sand rats. Our secrecy is our survival. Our survival is our strength. Our strength was once in our numbers. Now we live in the shadows and only come above ground one at a time. Our world was shattered by the Empire with whom this coward shares tables. Has returned. When one chooses to walk the way of the Mandalore, you are both hunter and prey. How can one be a coward if one chooses this way of life? Have you ever removed your helmet? No. Has it ever been removed by others? Never. This is the way. This is the way. This is the way. Joseph Campbell once told uh, uh, stories about a Lakota tradition where um, the, the young men in the tribe who were going to be initiated as men were sent out to hunt buffalo. And the older men in the tribe then hunted the young men. And this was an example in ancient mythology of you being both the hunter and the hunted. This is a deep mythological concept that we especially see in indigenous tribes from Australia to the United States into Europe over into Asia. Now, in this clip, we also get this sense that th there's, there's some real angst about the new story that is unfolding 
for the Mandalorians. There's a clinging to the past. And we find is, is uh, you know, the, the mythology of our own world continues to move forward. There's a lot of people that get very uh, clingy, you know, to, to the things of the past. I think there's a lot of metaphors happening in this particular, you know, clip for, for larger things happening in, in culture. With what is happening with the Mandalorian uh, and, and the choices he's uh, going to be making, I'm wondering if there are moments in this series where you have seen uh, something that surprised you as a Star Wars fan, something that you were like, ooh, that's really opening up my idea of the larger Star Wars mythology. Because that was the purpose of being both the hunter and the hunted, was to actually open up a much wider world to you and recognize the complexity of the world that you weren't always going to get to be the hunter. Sometimes you would be the hunted. And it was about expanding your view of the world. So I wonder if there have been any moments in the series that either expanded your view of the world or expanded your idea of the Star Wars mythology. Anything come to mind for anyone? For me, the moment, oh, uh, Bill Burr, I think, is the comedian who was in the episode. When Mando goes undercover with Bill Burr and takes his helmet off, I was like, what? <laughs> but obviously, it needed to be done. But that just kind of, <laughs> because, you know, and there's so few times when we see him. The first time, I guess, is when he's with the IG-11, yeah. the droid, because no human had seen his face at that point, because it's a droid. <laughs> but when he does this, I'm like, okay, because mission accomplishment is the most important thing, so I'm gonna break the code. And I know, again, as a screenwriter and a film professor, that's gonna have some ramifications <laughs> later on, because he just, you know, armor is not gonna be happy with that. By the way, one last thing before I tag in my, my colleagues. I find her character so fascinating because she represents so many characters in Greek and Roman mythology. She is Athena, who if you know the, uh, the Odyssey, the term mentor comes from when Athena took the, a male form to guide Telemachus while dad was uh, on a long journey home. And then also Hephaestus as the armorer mm. and a little bit of Hera as in she is in charge and nobody dares question her authority. <laughs> Great, I want more. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat a little bit, yeah. but I promise to bring it back to The Mandalorian. So again, I'm a, an Ahsoka super fan. Um, I'm going to go to The Clone Wars and talk about, very briefly, just her arc of choosing not to be, uh, I am no Jedi. You know, her arc in being questioned and doubted by the entire Jedi Order and choosing to leave and how impactful that is, I think, to the entire series and is amazing. Um, but I, I guess that I would link it back to the Mandalorian series because I think what's so fascinating is that we get to see in multiple iterations throughout the franchise now what it is to question the authority or the constructs in which you are born, in which you were raised, and that that might not be the right way, that it's okay to see what's happening, to acknowledge that it may not be right, 
and to change, mm. to change who you are, that your past doesn't define you and you can always be a better person, you can always change and do new things. Mm. And I think that, especially in this scene, you're seeing that because the Mandalorian and, and what he is fighting against, it's, it's twofold. It's, it's not just that his code, the, the, the guild code that he has to fight against, that you know he doesn't want to live by that code and he, he doesn't want to kill uh, Grogu, but he also has to then fight against, which we see more of in season two, the, the concepts of the Mandalorian and very specifically the, the ethos of the children of the watch that, you know, as, as uh, author, uh, authoritative, as knowledgeable as the armor is, and as we see, I, I think if I'm not mistaken, this is a, a character from House Vizsla that is fighting Mando in this scene. We see that again in season two. Um, so you're learning that it's okay not to be, you know, even if they may be your biological family, even if they, be, they may be your, your found family, it doesn't have to define you. You can change who you are at any time. Mm -hmm. That's what we all, we all need. <laughs> um, I think for me, I come from kind of a history background and history for me is very messy. And when you were talking about when uh, Mando takes off his helmet when he's in uh, the Imperial base, I keep thinking about Mayfield confronting his former commander and his righteous anger. And this realization that this character, who we've kind of like, ah, he's kind of a rake, kind of a joke, has this trauma that he's been carrying with him. And I think naturally, I was like, they're gonna come to a peaceful conclusion. They did not, he just shot him. Um, but I think there is a place there for an understanding of righteous anger when things have gone wrong. And I think a lot of times in culture, we venerate being very calm and not having feelings and, oh, you just let it pass. But sometimes you need to get pissed off about things that are not right. And I think that aspect of Mayfield, who I was not expecting to be the person who I would connect with, uh, was really important. And as they're getting back on the ship, as they're leaving, he just sometimes you, gotta, you have to be able to sleep at night. And seeing Mando had to take off his helmet, Mayfield had to shoot this guy in the chest. Um, that realization that our story, we can try and keep it as calm as possible, but when things are wrong, they're wrong. And sometimes you have to stand up. Hopefully it's not with violence, I would never encourage that. But being able to see that he did what he thought was right and it was violent was interesting to me from a point of view is that it's not, nothing is clear cut. Nothing is right or wrong, stuff is messy. And so that was the part where I was kind of shocked that it was presented that way, but it really resonated for me. Oh, I love that, I love that. Well, um... I, I think we would like to invite you into uh, conversation for uh, some questions. And as I see the first person uh, coming, I'm, I'm, I'm screening questions. you're screening. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> well, if you, if you'd like to line up, I, I do want to mention, cause I see one of my dear friends in the audience and anybody a big fan of, of, of uh, Star Wars fan films. Yeah, me too. And I see Jamie Costa back there. Jamie, would you stand? If you have not seen Kenobi, the, the, the fan film, incredible. When you leave tonight, go watch Kenobi 
the, the fan film, it's, it's one of the best Star Wars stories I've ever seen, and he plays an incredible Kenobi. Thanks for coming, Jamie. Glad you're here, man. All right, I, I, I see someone coming to the mic, or maybe uh, maybe they're just coming to sit down. No? Oh, yeah, they're coming to sit down. That's all right. That's all right. Does anyone? Oh, yes, sir. I was going to ask about the extension of Kenobi. Okay, I wanted to talk about uh, Mando's start, where his community is himself, and then it becomes his narrow clan and then his sense of what it means to be a Mandalorian becomes larger as he's exposed to more and more people in a larger community. And how does that relate to the sense that a hero's journey brings something back to the community if that community that he's bringing that gift back to is in continuously changing and expanding? Oh, that's a great question. Oh. Great question. Uh, well, one of the things is, uh, kind of standard for, for the hero's journey is you start with the hero leaving the ordinary world and there's a call to adventure, rejection of the call, yada, yada, blah, blah. When you get to the end, the world he or she returns to is a transformed and changed world. I would submit to you that as we're seeing the evolution of Mando's world, because like any culture, it always tickles me when somebody appoints themselves, I speak for all African. No, you don't. <laughs> I, you know, we are not a monochromatic block. Lentitos are a monochromatic block. No ethnic community is one, is just one tribe, one people who just believe all the same thing. The fact that Mando's being exposed to this after being raised by this one sect, he's having kind of his world deconstructed in front of him and so I think as everything is going to play out over the next few seasons, he's going to end up with a much larger conception of what it means to be a Mandalorian. Wonderful answer, Tom. I don't know that that can be improved on. That is really good. Please. Hi. Uh, thank you for having this panel. I teach high school English. And oh, right on. they know that to get anywhere, they either distract me by talking about Star Wars or... Um, <laughs> Best teacher ever. Yes. I love it. And I teach, but I do for my 10th graders, I teach the hero's journey and use Star Wars as an example. And something that caught my attention, you were talking about orphanhood. And I'd like to hear what you have to say, kind of about the flip side of that, because within the Star Wars universe and all the other universes that you just mentioned, surrogacy is key. You know, um, in a way, it's like it's called the Mandalorian, not. Grogu, and, and even though the Mandalorian himself is an orphan, he becomes a surrogate, yeah. and other people become surrogates. So I just would kind of like your feedback on that. Yeah, Ooh, that's good. That's good. Anyone, uh, anyone feeling, feeling drawn to that? <laughs> for it, Mama. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say, Barbara has two of the cutest twins you'll ever see in your life, and so that's why we're like, Barbara, do you have anything to say about this? <laughs> I think, I think that, oh, and I, I will add the caveat, I have only been a parent for a year and a half, so I am by no means <laughs> completely knowledgeable. I am not, you know, in the, the parenting community, I, I am not the be-all, end-all knowledge of parenthood. And I think that parenthood and being a guardian 
it means different things to different people because they, again, going back to their own lived experiences. You know, we, we've all grown up either with, you know, parents or guardians or uh, in the absence of parents or guardians or what those guardians look like may be vastly different for each one of us in this room. Um, but I don't think that uh, regardless of what your, your guardians look like raising you, it can very much mean that that informs who you are as an adult and what it means for you to pass that on, what being a good parent or being a parent means for you as you raise a new being. So I, I, again, I, I think that our stories very much define us, they're, they're very universal, but they, they form who we are at all times and, and we always want to hopefully do better and be better, so hopefully you know, no matter what our, our upbringing was, we can be better than, than we had. Mm. Very, very, I love that, love that so much. Yes. Uh, so, sorry, uh, if I recall correctly, there was something that Joseph Campbell said in The Power of Myth uh, regarding the need for a new myth. And um, I think specifically he was talking maybe about that move from the individual to the collective. And also he mentioned you know, space, and it sounds very much like he's talking about Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious uh, if, if you all have any thoughts about maybe what the next stage of myth would be, you know, once we've moved from the individual to the collective, and then what next? Do you mind if I uh, take it. this one? <laughs> um, yeah, I, you, are, uh, you are speaking my language, sir. Um, Joseph Campbell, at the end of his life, was very concerned about the effect of the machine on mythology and how the machine would affect mythology. And he felt a lot of the themes he saw in the first trilogy, uh, the, the only trilogy that he was alive to see, about human beings versus the machine. And one of the biggest concerns Campbell had is, will our machines make us more human or less human? And he was, uh, my understanding is when he watched, he watched all three films in a row uh, with, with George Lucas, and he was especially taken towards the end of Return of the Jedi when Darth Vader's mask comes off and we see inside this, this person who even says, I'm actually more machine than man now. And, and that had a deep effect on Campbell. I think um, the, the future of mythology and our myths, uh, it, it's going to involve how we respond to artificial intelligence, to the metaverse, to all of these um, places that our technology is taking us, and we're going to have the opportunity to decide if our machines are going to make us more human or less human, and I think that will be the next mythological challenge that we will face as human beings. Mm. Thanks for that question. Yeah. Hi there. Um, you had mentioned that uh, in the hero's journey, there's a lot of sages or elders that contribute wisdom down to the individuals going along their journey. How do you think the child and youth, you know, impart their own wisdom, even though they're usually without experience? Ooh. That's a hard one. Um, I, think, I think youth gives us perspective, a new perspective. Um, in my work, I work with a lot of um, Generation Z. I'm older than that. Um, and just the way that 
youth views the world is going to, um, if you're stuck in a story, I think you've told yourself these stories for years. I know I have. Um, and when you have somebody who's young and who comes with a fresh perspective, it's like an eye-opening experience. And so I think a lot of times, and I think in society in general, we kind of push youth to the side of like, you don't know any better. Um, and I think that's, we're, do, that's, we're doing ourselves a disservice by doing that. And we're seeing that now, where the youth is leading so many of the movements that are pushing our communities forward. And so I see with The Mandalorian is you have this sweet Grogu who is so present and so open and it causes Mando to become that way. It softens him in a way that he needs to. It, it develops that compassion you were talking about. And I think that's what youth can provide. And I think it provides that in so many different stories. Um, and I think we're seeing that now in our own cultural myth is that so many of the youth are kind of leading the way and pushing us forward um, to where we need to go. Mm. So good, so good. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I had a question because I know sometimes Star Wars is referred to as a myth. Oftentimes it seems like Star Wars or the Star Wars fan community is referred to as a religion. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what the, how the panel reacts whenever Star Wars is referred to as a religion and not a myth. Joseph Campbell famously said that uh, uh, mythology is other people's religion. Mm. So we, we often, you know, look at our own and say, well, what, what I believe is religion, but what, what those people over there believe, that's mythology. And so I, I think that's, uh, you know, we, when we look at sort of classical definitions, you know, uh, mythology and religion, um, you don't find a lot of differences there. It still it revolves around ritual. It revolves around what are the, uh, Campbell said there was four functions of mythology. There's a, this philosophical piece, this sociological piece, this psychological piece, and then this cosmological piece that explains sort of where we all come from, you know, in some way. And you see this in Star Wars. Uh, in, in the larger, especially in the expanded universe. Any expanded universe fans out there? Yeah! So I would, I would say whenever I hear people refer to Star Wars as a religion, it does not bother me in the least. I, I sort of say, yeah, actually all the, the technical boxes get checked there. Mm. Yeah, Thank great you. question. Okay, uh, season's greetings panel. Hello. Um, <laughs> um, uh, I just wanted to ask a little bit about um, uh, something that I hear sometimes or often is uh, the concept that there are no new stories, that the kind of, that phraseology really rubs me the wrong way. Um, but that, uh, um, that uh, since stories are all kind of made up of things that we all feel, there is some element of like, they're all humans, so they can't be so new that we can't recognize them. Um, but I just want to ask kind of what to you um, sort of uh, what, is, what are new stories? Um, apply that to Star Wars a little bit, if you like. Um, and just kind of how we can nurture that both with like Star Wars and in general uh, new stories. I'll, I'll start it. <laughs> I, I hate when people say that. There are 26 letters in the Phoenician alphabet. There are infinite permutations of how you can put them together. 
There are stories yet to be told that will come from people in this very room. Uh, the best stories are the story that I tell my students, tell a story that's deeply personal to you because you as a human being will be able to connect with another person who is also a human being. We have far more in common than we have differences. And it drives me crazy when people say stuff like that. It's, it's not true. Uh, just tell a personal story. I can't tell you how many times I've been teaching, this is year 24, and the student will say, oh, it's something that happened to me, nobody will care. Yes, they will care, because it's deeply meaningful and there are universal truths that can be extrapolated from this small personal story. Uh, I love the early trailers for Star Wars. It's the story of a boy, a girl, and a galaxy. Star Wars! <laughs> and look at us all here today one room in a mighty convention center, and there's a lot of people who couldn't get in because they couldn't get a ticket. We're out of time, unfortunately. They, uh, uh, we have another panel coming in, but please uh, thank the panel for me, if you would, yeah. As I think about all those ideas that came out of the panel, I've continued to consider what Tori Yates Orr said about the motif of orphanhood in Star Wars. Feelings of being alone are what bring communities like the one we find among Star Wars fans together. When that relationship with our individual journey and our collective journey falls out of balance, we often struggle to experience the lives that we long for. Joseph Campbell once famously suggested that that experience was of greater significance to us than any meaning we might find in our lives. Stories like those seen in Star Wars recognize the human search for connection, the ever-evolving relationship between light and the shadows inside of each of us, and the masks we all don in an effort to avoid allowing others to truly see us for who we are. It's no wonder we continue to tell tales like The Mandalorian. We never tire of a new mirror that might show us who we are, and who we might could be. Next time on the podcast with a thousand faces, we welcome Satya Doyle Bayak. Satya is a psychotherapist in Portland, Oregon, the founding director of the Salome Institute of Jungian Studies, and the author of Quarter Life Crisis The Search for Self in Early Adulthood which considers a number of Joseph Campbell's ideas and frameworks from a fresh perspective. Hear that conversation next time on the podcast with a thousand faces. We'll see you then. The podcast with a thousand faces is a production of the Joseph Campbell foundation. It is produced by John Booker, Ilya Smirnoff and Tyler Lapkin. Executive producer, Robert Walter, all music exclusively provided by APM music. For more podcasts and information about Joseph Campbell, please visit jcf.org.